Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 13 to chapter 4, verse 5. 2 Timothy 3, 13 to 4, 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under the chair in front of you, a brown hardback. And it's uh, the Pew Bible. You can pull that out and turn to page 843. Page 843 in the Pew Bible if you don't have one of your own. If you're using your phone, I would encourage you to be on airplane mode or something like that so you're not distracted by texts or pings or notifications as we meditate on God's Word for the next 45 minutes. Page 843. If this is your first time looking at a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. So when I say chapter 3... That's the big number. Then verse 13 is a small little number. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Hear then the word of the living God. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom... Preach the message or proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, be serious about everything, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Father, we pray now that as you have spoken to us by the reading of your word, we pray now that as we meditate on it and as I seek to expound it and as we seek to have the words and intention of this passage control our minds and our thoughts right now in the sermon preached, we ask that your spirit would help us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to material gain. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that all other things will be added to us. And even as our brother Aaron read to us this morning, help us to set our mind on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. For Christ, who is our life, when he appears, we also will appear with him in glory. So fix our eyes, Lord, on you. For apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us here now and help even our brother Chris and our sister Bethany as they teach your word to our children. May you open their eyes there as well and save them. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen. I grew up in a gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching church. My brother and I had a best friend who grew up with us. He played basketball with us, made music with me. He helped me worship Jesus, learn how to confess sin, practice accountability, bear each other's burdens. We've shared the gospel with non-Christians together. We discipled other students together. We were very close. We were brothers, ministry partners in the trenches, not just in theory, but in gospel ministry growing up. Then he went to a Southern Baptist college, Christian college in Southern California, south of the L.A. area. And he had a philosophy professor who planted seeds of not believing everything in the Bible, but learning to doubt and question some things in the Bible. And so it began with doubting whether we can know some doctrines are true. The ones on the the, the not-so-important ones. Then it moved to people, to him thinking that people can get to God without going through Jesus. Then it moved towards sexual immorality in his own life and adultery. And now his thinking is complete gender confusion, as it is in our culture today. 
And you look down at 2 Timothy 3.13 and it says, Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. It doesn't have to be as extreme as my friend. If you've been in the church long enough, you've seen many members and attenders who once had a vibrant faith at one season in their lives eventually walk away from the church and walk away from Jesus. You can see their faces now if you've been here for a while. If you're a new Christian, you haven't seen that yet, but I can almost guarantee you that you will, sadly. Or maybe you know some who've stayed in a church or they transferred to another church, but they just attend and don't really exercise a lack of or exercise faithful and vibrant love for Jesus or for his cause. These are people who started in the church. When you read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and it's talking about how difficult times are there, people will be lovers of self in verse 2, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. He is talking about people in the church, not people in the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, if I was talking about people in the world, then you'd have to leave the world. Get on a spaceship and get out of here. Well, there weren't spaceships in Paul's day. So he wasn't talking about leaving the world. He's talking about those in the church. This could be you. This could be me. How do people like this stray from the word? I have, I just kind of brainstormed. I have like maybe eight ideas here. I'm just going to share it by way of introduction. And I made up some words here. Um, But here are some. License. Why do people stray from the word? Maybe license. They minimize sin. They feel like sin's not a big deal and they have the license to sin and and they minimize the, the, the seriousness of sin. Or they feel like if Christ died for your sins, past, present, and future, I can sin because I'm justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We talked about that last week, right? You're not justified by your works. And therefore, I could sin as much as I want, and it's not a big deal because I'm justified by faith alone in Christ alone and his works not my own. So we take the true gospel, we misapply it into our lives as a license to sin. We talked about last week, not only are you justified by faith alone, but now Paul in Galatians 2.20 was crucified with Christ and he lives by faith every day in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. And so it's not just the initial salvation, which is by faith alone, but the regular sanctification, which comes by living by faith every day. So license is one reason why people stray from the word. Another reason people stray from the word is legalism. They hold to and maintain extra rules that are beyond what the Bible actually commands. There are other rules that they demand that they and other people live by that are not in the Bible itself. You do that enough, you're going to stray from the word. There's celebrityism, where people would follow a celebrity, a Christian religious leader celebrity, and when they go astray or they teach something astray, the people just follow. That's another way you could stray. Another way you could stray is traditionalism following traditional practices or things that um, people have learned from their parents or their churches, and they confuse what the Bible says with what was historically or traditionally practiced. You do that, you can stray from the word to keep your traditions. There's adultism or independenceism. I've seen this as a youth pastor. You have people who grow up in the church, like our kids are growing up in the church. Then they get their driver's license and their own car. Now they don't have to ride with their parents to church. Then you test whether they would want to go to church from their own volition or whether they were only going because you forced them to go, right? I mean, I've seen that dozens of times as a youth pastor. And that's what happens. Adultism. Well, now you're independent. Make your own choices. And you see them stray once they get their freedom to stray. Knowledgeism. You could stray from the Bible when all you do is seek Bible knowledge, but you don't apply it to your own life. And that leads to pride and arrogance and a false Christian maturity where you see if you know more Bible than other people and you think you're more mature because you know more Bible. That's not the same thing. A lot of people who know a lot of the Bible are immature. They're, more, they're less mature than people who know less than them because they apply less than those around them. There's preachyism. People walk away because um, people use the Bible to simply talk about how bad the culture is or how bad the country is or how bad their neighbors are. And they don't really, at least to the world, practice what they preach. And so that turns off other people in the church. 
There's relativism. The Bible is 100% true for me, but not necessarily for you. Everyone has a right to their own truth. Who am I to tell someone else they're wrong? There's privatism, which is my faith is no one else's business. It's only between me and God at all times. So no one can question my faith or challenge my faith, which is not true. Christianity is always personal, but it is never private. Just remember baptism. That's a public profession of faith. It's not a private profession of faith. Communion. We're going to take communion today. That's not a private profession of faith. That's a public profession of faith. So the solution then to not stray from the word is to go to God's word, the scriptures. The good news is that God still speaks today. That God speaks clearly and authoritatively about who he is, who we are, and what the world is like. And so we do well to listen to him. Think about 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is what? God breathed, inspired, breathed out by God, and is profitable. So if it's breathed out by God, that's another way of saying that God spoke the scriptures. That's all it means, that God spoke. When you speak, you breathe out your words. You're always exhaling when you speak. You're never inhaling. And so it's more like expiring the word than inspiring the word. He's breathing it out. God spoke the scriptures. And so if God spoke the scriptures... We learn a few things about the scriptures. All this by way of introduction. Half the sermon is introduction. The other half is application, okay? Just for those who are taking notes. If God breathed out these words, then they are authoritative. God is the author. To have authority means you have the right to determine what's good, what's right, and what's true. You say what's good. You say what's right. You say what's true when you have the authority, If we want to know what's good, right, and true, we go to the Bible then. It's the authority over all lesser yet legitimate authorities. The government is a lesser yet legitimate authority. Politicians are lesser yet legitimate authorities. Police officers are the same. Parents are the same. Husbands to wives in marriage is the same. There are lesser yet legitimate authorities. Military officers have authority. Teachers have authority in school. Pastors, church leaders have authority in the church. The congregation has authority in congregationalism as a church. And yet they are lesser authorities. And so they need to submit to what we're calling the final authority. God's word is the only final authority. The Bible alone. Last week we talked about faith alone. The only way to be saved or stand right before God is by faith alone in Christ alone. This week, we're talking about the Bible alone as the final authority. You build your church, we build our church on these two truths, and we'll be, in the, we'll be okay. If these two things stay true in our church, we will be okay. So the Bible's not only authoritative, it's inerrant. What we mean by that is if God spoke this, and Hebrews says that it is impossible for God to lie, then everything God says is true. He can't lie. He can't make a mistake. And so in the original writing of the Bible, there is no error. Everything God communicates in the way he intended to communicate it is true. Everything without error in the original manuscripts. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, okay, time out, PJ, time out. It seems impossible today, this is 2016, it seems impossible to take the Bible as completely authoritative in light of modern science. Social science, history, and culture. I mean, we can't even be sure that the Bible's accounts are even true. Aren't they legends? I mean, do you really believe Jesus walked on water or he was born of a virgin or rose from the dead? When does that happen scientifically? And furthermore, much of the Bible's social teaching, for example, teaching about women or teaching about gender or teaching about ethics, Sexuality is socially regressive. How can we trust the Bible scientifically, historically, or socially in this day and age? Well, a brief response is, if you say, well, how do we believe Jesus rose from the dead, for example? The answer is, they can't be legends because they were written, one, too soon after the events. Jesus died and rose in 33 AD or 30 AD, depending on your dating, but most likely 33 AD. And the writings were, they were, they were beginning in the mid-40s. Everyone, or the, the vast majority of those who experienced Jesus' life and times were alive when the Bible was being written, the New Testament was being written. 
and they never contradicted it, even though they were there. You know why? Because it happened. Legends build only when there's enough distance of time for the legend, the the fib, the fable, to be plausible. It's not plausible in the first generation because people are still there. And yet they were written in that first generation because it was true. So, and then the second thing is, in, in terms of the writing, is it would be too, it would be far too counterproductive to say the things that they said if they were making it up. So, for example, the first witnesses for Jesus from the dead were who? Women, right? Now, in that day and age in the Roman Empire, where women could not legally testify in court, or not always, their testimony, testimony can legally be thrown out just on the virtue of their gender, you don't build a whole religion, a whole worldview a whole life and community on that lie. Why did they write that women saw Jesus first? Because women saw Jesus first. Amen. That's why. They, they weren't trying to make it up. They weren't trying to, 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 to manipulate the situation to trick people. They were just telling the story like it was. And so the Bible, is it, it can't be legends. It can't be fables and myths. It's not tall tales. And, and then if you're offended, well, what about culturally? The Bible has all these outdated cultural ethics. And, and the Bible is culturally relative. It's offensive. Well, let me say to you, um, the texts you find difficult and offensive are common sense to people in other cultures today. So, for example, we have a big, our, our culture is largely pro-homosexuality uh, and pro-gender you know, confusion or, or genderlessness, Right? Gender self-identification. Well, if you go to the vast majority of the world today even, go to the Middle East and most of the Muslim countries, they're not confused about this issue. I'm not saying Islam is right in everything they say, but my point is just because it's true in California, in our culture, doesn't mean the majority of the world think that way. In other words, we might say, well, you need to be more culturally broad. Well, you need to be more, more culturally broad too. There's a lot of different cultures today that think differently. Furthermore, don't we look at some of the practices of our grandparents or great-grandparents and say, wow, they were really outdated on that? Do you think that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren won't disagree with anything you've said? That's just not going to happen. So if we say that our culture has the defining, we know what the true thing is, because now we're at the certain point where we've reached it, just know that a few generations from now, people will look back on some of the things you've thought. And, and just dismiss it easily. So if you just say, well, the Bible's too culturally offensive, you're just, that's relative to you. And so for those reasons, I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to consider the Bible as God's word, because it is. Amen. Okay, so it's not only authoritative and inerrant, it's also profitable. The Bible is profitable. What we mean by that is that, go back to verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and is what? What's the next word? Profitable. So it benefits you. Profitable for what? Rebuking, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and for training in righteousness. In other words, the Bible benefits our lives. And then lastly, the Bible is sufficient. It is enough. Enough to do what? Equip, verse 17, so that the man of God is competent or complete and equipped for what? How many good works? Every good work. Everything, every good thing that you need to do in your life today. Every relationship you have, every conversation you have, every stage of life you're in, every good deed that you need to do in any given moment of your life, the Bible has the resources to equip you for it. It is sufficient for equipping you to please God in everything. The Bible is not sufficient for everything in the world. Remember Job? We talked about the insufficiency of Scripture. It's not sufficient to tell you the mysteries of God. It's not sufficient to tell you God and Satan's dealings. It's not sufficient to tell you everything about everything. The secret things belong to the Lord, but what is revealed belongs to us and our children. So it's insufficient for everything in the world. It's sufficient for training you in godliness for every area of your life to glorify God. Now, um, the Cambridge Declaration, some of you might have heard this. This is a a declaration of churches across denominations, and they wrote, um, I'll quote it, it says this, Scripture alone is the inerrant rule of the church's life, but the evangelical church today has separated Scripture from its authoritative function. In practice, the church is guided far too often by the culture. That's true of too many churches. Okay, I'm not quoting anymore, but too many churches don't let their church be guided by the Bible. 
They, they say that they believe the Bible, but what's functionally running the decisions of their church is not the Bible. It's guided by culture, whether this culture or previous culture. And that is dangerous for a church. And so um, they, they, write, they continue to write, the biblical word rather than spiritual experience is the test of truth. So here's their thesis. It's called Sola Scriptura, Scripture Alone. We reaffirm the inerrant Scripture to be the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard, the standard, by which all Christian behavior must be measured. I would also add all church behavior must be measured. And then it says, We deny that any creed, council, or individual may bind a Christian's conscience. That the Holy Spirit speaks independently of or contrary to what is set forth in the Bible or that personal spiritual experience can ever be a vehicle of revelation. So we want to bind Christians' consciences, not with creeds, not with councils, not with personal opinions, not with traditions, but with the word of God. That's what Martin Luther famously said when he was tried in the trial of worms, where he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot do otherwise. It is unsafe. And so that must be true of our lives as well. This is crucial for our Christians in our for us Christians in our lives. The final sole authority is the Bible. So how should we respond to this truth? Okay, if the Bible is the only authority, the Bible alone is our final authority, how should we respond to this truth? This is the second half of the sermon now. Three ways, okay? Look at your Bible here. There are three responses, three necessary responses to the Bible alone as the final authority in your life and in our lives as a church family. Number one, I'll just say all three. Stay in the word. Number two is um, personalize the word. And number three is announce the word. Okay? Stay in the word, personalize the word, and announce the word. Let's look at these one at a time. First of all, stay in the word. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Go back to verse 14. Here's Paul writing to Timothy, and he says this. But as for you, and what's the command here? Say it. What's the command? Continue, remain, or stay in what you have learned and firmly believed. So that's the first thing. If, you're going, if you believe the Bible is the authority, you need to stay where you are. Remain where you are. Continue in what you have believed. Don't leave. Don't leave that. Don't leave what you've believed. Don't leave what you believe. It's a nice little rhyme. So what are you supposed to stay in? What are you supposed to remain in? There's five things here to remain in. Okay, look at it, verse 14. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. So continue in what you know. Continue in what you already believe from the past. Don't stray from the gospel that you or from, from your beliefs. That doesn't mean all of your beliefs are correct. You should be correcting your beliefs in some ways, but in large ways, stay in what you believe. Number two, what else should you stay in? Look at verse 14 again. You know those who what? End of verse 14. You know those who taught you. So stay in what you were taught by others around you. Now, who was Timothy taught by? He was taught by his mom and by his grandma, it says. Lois and Eunice. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, um, Your sincere faith, Timothy, that first lived in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and that I'm convinced is in you also. Timothy, don't forget, don't forget who taught you. Stay in the lane of those who have taught before you. Number three, look at verse 15. And you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures. So stay in what was your historic decision. Now, when did Timothy believe? In what? Or during what? Verse 15. How old was Timothy about? Or what stage of life was Timothy at when he believed? He was a child, right? Were you saved when you were a child? Some of you were, some of you weren't. But here's the point that Paul's telling you today, that God's telling you today. Remember your historic decision. I don't know when you got saved. Some of you, I know some of you, as I've been getting to know members and as we've been taking in new members, I, I get your story. Some of you got saved when you were adults. Some of you got saved when you were children. Here's the point. Stay in what you were, stay in what you got saved in. Remember it. Go back to your decision. Go back to your conversion when you first repented and believed. Or if you don't remember... Best case scenario, because you grew up in a Christian home, still remember the roots of your childhood and how you always believed the scriptures. Stay in that historic decision. Then moving on to verse 15, stay in the sacred scriptures. 
Stay in the Bible. The Bible is 66 books. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. Don't go beyond what is written. I was telling one of the church members, I'm not saying everyone should get a tattoo. I'm not saying tattoos are good or bad right now. But I said, if someone got a tattoo, that would be a good tattoo to get. Nothing beyond what is written. That's second. That's 1 Timothy 4.6. 1 Timothy 4.6, Paul reminds the church at Corinth, don't forget the saying, not beyond what is written. That's a good mantra to have in this church. Nothing beyond what is written. Nothing beyond what is written. Nothing beyond what is written. Only what is written in the scripture is what we will do. Nothing beyond what is written. The sacred scriptures are where you should remain. And not only that, end of verse 15, stay in what? The sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for what? For salvation through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. So stay in the gospel. Stay in the message of Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's the first thing. First response, if you believe that God's word is the, the inerrant, authoritative, final authority in your life, then stay in what you know. Stay in what your, what your parents taught you, if you, were, if you were, or stay in what was originally given to you from those who shared the gospel with you and originally gospelized you. Stay in your historic decision. Stay in the Bible alone. And stay in the gospel message. That is the main focus of the Bible, the message of Jesus Christ. Beware of moralism. Don't stay in the Bible apart from Jesus. That's where moralism comes in. You just want to say, this is right and this is wrong. This is right and this is wrong. And they could even be Bible things that are right and wrong. Don't steal. That's true. But don't divorce stealing from Jesus. Don't lie. Tell the truth. That's true. But remind them that Jesus is the truth. And then when you lie, you violate Jesus, the truth. Always make it personal. Always keep it tied to the gospel. Beware of moralism on the one hand. Beware of Bible knowledgeism on the other hand, where it's just knowing the Bible apart from personally, humbly worshiping Jesus Christ. Okay, let me give you two examples here of people who stayed in the Word. Well, a bad example. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul, oh, 4, 9, Paul says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas has deserted me. Why? Why did Demas, one of the apostles' friends, one of the church planners, why did he desert Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10? He loved the what? Present world. That's another reason people stray from Christ and the Bible and the church. Because they fall in love with the present world. It chokes out the word of God in them, to use um, the analogy of Jesus with the parable. There's weeds that grow around their plant, and the cares of this world, the material gains of this world... The wisdom of this world chokes out their faith in Jesus. So they might have grown up in the church. They might have had a vibrant faith in Christ. They might have even preached behind a pulpit to the church family in seasons of their lives. And now they're so bogged down with the love of this world that they don't love Jesus. They say they love Jesus, but they don't love Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so Demas did not stay in the word. Remember King Saul? He didn't stay in the word either. He only stayed when it was convenient. But as soon as he felt pressure from the outside to compromise, because he felt like his soldiers were going to leave him, he compromised the word. Stay in the word. Stay in the word. And what I mean, when I'm telling you to stay in the word, brothers and sisters, I'm, saying, I'm encouraging you to not... What I mean by this is not that you'll never grow. I'm not saying be so stubborn that you can never be corrected. That what you believe right now... This moment is all correct, and you should never be corrected. That's not what I'm saying. You need to be corrected in your, or else you'll never grow. But it does mean that you never leave the Scripture as your final authority and the gospel as the center of your life and message. Amen. That's what it means. Be corrected on everything else. You don't, you don't, um, don't let your initial embarrassment of the Bible take root in your lives. You know there's certain doctrines in the Bible you're embarrassed of around your non-Christian friends? Is there some for you? Maybe, maybe not. You know, you're hanging out with your friend and they're like, man, Christians are so narrow that it's only through Jesus you can go to heaven. You feel a little sheepish. You don't want to say, you don't want to, well, I actually believe that. Or, you know, there's a conversation going on in the neighborhood that, that the Bible, that there's all these religious books like the Book of Mormon. There's all these, all these books that are so mythical and so outrageously foolish that anyone who bases their life on an old book is a fool. And you're kind of like, I kind of base my life on an old book. Or hell. How can a God send anyone to hell? And you kind of feel, oh, I don't like that doctrine. So you feel a little embarrassed about it. Or sexuality and gender today. 
feel embarrassed by the teaching of the Bible. So I, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you feel embarrassed by it, don't let that embarrassment take root. You need to understand that what you believe, if it's biblical, is good and right and true. And it's not just good for you. It's good for the people around you in that conversation. It doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about it or start pointing the finger at everyone. But it does mean you need to not leave the word, but stay in the word. So stay in the word. Disciple the people you have to stay in the word. And then lastly with this, let me speak to you children. Children, listen up. Some of you are um, here because your parents have you here. You need to stay in the word even if your parents stray from the word. Okay? You need to stay in Jesus and stay living according to the Bible even if your parents stray from the Bible because God is the ultimate authority. You need to stay with God and listen to his word no matter what. When you get older, you're going to be tested. You're going to have tests from this world. You're going to have tests of freedom. You're going to have tests of adulthood. And it's very important in those times that you stay close to Jesus and stay in the Bible. All right, so stay in the word. Secondly, personalize the word. Personalize the word. I don't want to go too deep into this for the sake of time, but I do want to pick up two things. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. And then for what? What's the second one? For what? For reproof or rebuking. The third one is for what? Correcting. And then the last one is for what? Training in righteousness. Let me just leave aside the teaching and training for now. Okay? Or for this sermon, probably. I want to focus on reproving or rebuking and on correcting. So my point here, I could, I could have a broader point of train yourself in the word, but I want to be more specific this morning. Personalize the word. What I mean by that is when you start talking about rebuke and you start talking about correction, you're talking about specific things in your life that are going wrong. You're talking about specific disobedience. You're getting personal. I could teach that the Bible's authority, the, the final authority in your life, and everyone could say yes and Amen. But once I start personalizing it to you, or once you start personalizing it to yourself and you start exposing sins in your life, that's when we get uncomfortable, right? But that's what you need. You need to personalize it and let the the word rebuke you. Let it point out sin. Let it show you the blind spots, the dirt on your face. We can't see our faces right now. We need a mirror, right? Let it expose the blemishes. Let it rebuke you. And then let it correct you and show you the way out. How to come back to God. How to change. How to grow. Rebuke and correction get personal because it specifically identifies an area or practice or action or feeling or thought or word in your life that has been sinful. It's specific. It's identifiable. You can run the replay, pause the tape and say, stop, right there. That's where it's sin. That's what happens with the rebuke. Then you can correct it with grace, with the gospel, and with biblical holiness moving forward. Praise God that he corrects us, right? Praise God that he rebukes us. Praise God that we can still grow. Imagine if you were the same Christian you were 15 years ago. That's a scary thought for some of us, right? Praise God that he's been rebuking us and correcting us day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Do you remember Peter? Last week we talked about Peter getting rebuked by Paul. Remember that? Now, Peter, did he receive that rebuke or did he reject it? Paul doesn't tell us, but we know he received it. At the end of Peter's life, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes about Paul's writings and says, Hey, read Paul's writings. They're scripture. They're God's word. What we see there is Peter, even the apostle Peter, the leader of the church, can be rebuked and corrected by the word. Right? I remember one of my pastors um, growing up when I was probably, I was probably a pastor already. Maybe I was 22 or 23. I was zealous to share the gospel with Mormons. They knocked on my door and I let them in my house. I gave them water. was so hospitable. I said, how long is your training thing? They said, six weeks. I'll take all six weeks. Just schedule me in. Come here and let's, let's meet together. And I want to hear what you have to say from your own, from your own mouth. And I, I don't believe what you teach, but I'm happy to interact with you. So I did that for six weeks. And then I was talking about it at church. And one of my fellow pastors said, you know, that disobeys what God said in Second John, right? And I was like, what? He says that you shouldn't even greet or shake hands with, or, you know, you shouldn't greet or welcome a false teacher in your life. And you're giving them water and hanging out with them? So I was like, where does it say that? So he shows me, you know, and 
We get to, what is it? I'll look at it right now. Second John chapter, or there's only one chapter. Second John 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home or say welcome to him. For the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. You're sharing with his evil works, PJ. He's going around propagating a doctrine, sending people to hell. He's convincing people to go to hell. And you're there welcoming him and shaking his hand and, and giving him water. And you're sharing in his works. Wow. That was a rebuke. And I guarantee I've never done that ever since. You know, I always say, hey, I can't shake your hand. I don't mean to be mean. I just got to obey God's word. And I really want you to know that what you're teaching is very dangerous. So I've spoke to many Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses since then and have never, you know, and I was corrected by that. I was trained in righteousness. Even the Southern Baptist Convention, we publicly repented in the 1990s for racism as a convention. The point is we need to personalize the word. Don't do, it's not enough to grow in Bible knowledge, brothers and sisters. It's not enough. It's got to be personal. It's got to change you this week. It has to make a difference. So personalize it to yourself. Examine yourself. Don't leave the scriptures without letting God personally address you and check you in some way. Pray, God, open my eyes. Show me parts in my life that are displeasing to you. And give me the humility to receive it and change and to repent. And then personalize it to other people. Brothers and sisters, church family, this is very important for our church health, so you need to listen up. Don't be content with sheepishly hinting at things with each other. Don't merely hint at sin in each other's lives. Now, you've got to do that sometimes. I'm hesitant to say that because that becomes a license for everyone to say, that's all I'm going to do. You need to clearly and straightforwardly point out sin in each other's lives from time to time. I need rebuke. You need rebuke. And when I need it, I need you to be clear and straightforward and biblical. And you need it too. So personalize it to each other and let others personalize it to you. When was the last time you were rebuked or corrected by someone else clearly? Do you invite correction? Do you invite rebuke? When was the last time you said, you know what, uh, to your spouse, this is a good assignment. This is good for marriage health. If you could could build yourself the courage and humility for it. Go to your spouse and say, what sins or areas of my life do you think I'm not pleasing God lately in the last three months? Any areas of my life where I'm not pleasing God? Go ahead. Punch me in the face. You know, punch me emotionally in the face. Yeah. Yeah. We should do that, right? I mean, if we believe that the Bible is the final authority, not us, we should be able to be rebuked and we should be able to be corrected, right? And then personalize it as a church. Are we as a church following the teaching of the Bible? Are we as a church receiving rebuke and correction? Are we being trained by the scriptures as a church and doing all the good works God would have for Southern Baptist Church do? Where are our strengths? Where have we obeyed? Let's praise God. There's a lot of good things going on in our church, right? We should be praising God for that. Where are we failing? Where are we not obeying the Lord as we ought to? Let us beware, let us be convicted, let us repent, and let us resolve to do away with our sin corporately and move forward in passionate and joyful biblical obedience. Next week, I'm going to be preaching on Matthew 18, 15 to 18, and we're going to talk about the keys of the kingdom. We're going to talk, and we're going to apply it very specifically to the membership role of our church. I think the Bible has something to say to us about how to obey. I'm going to personalize it to the church next week. Because we are not obeying God in a particular area of our lives, and we need to personalize it. I need to apply this even as a pastor. So we're going to do that next week. I had that here in my notes this week, and I realized this sermon would be way too long if I put that in here. So we'll put that for next week. So that's the second thing. Personalize the word, okay? Stay in the word. Don't leave. Secondly, personalize the word. Don't just know it and, oh, that was a nice sermon. Personalize it to your own life. The less you're personalizing it to your life, the less you're growing. That's just a biblical principle. And if you're never personalizing to your life, you're not a Christian. Probably. Christians have a personal relationship with Jesus. Isn't that the core of it? And if our Lord could never correct us, or if he's never corrected us, you've got to wonder, is he really your Lord? Do you really have a personal relationship with him? So personalize it. Third, and lastly. So stay in the word, personalize the word. Lastly, announce the word. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, so much to say there that we must pass over. Verse 2, preach the message or proclaim 
announce, declare the message. This is what is central, the message. What message? The message of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel that God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And all who repent from their sins and trust in him alone can be forgiven and saved and given eternal life. And given his Holy Spirit who will begin to transform you all the way into eternity. With a transformed society and a transformed creation in the end. That's the message that's central. That's the message we're supposed to announce. Should we preach gospel ethics? How to live your life? Yes or no? Yes. We should preach it necessarily and regularly, but we should never preach those centrally. Gospel ethics are never central. They're necessary. But we preach the gospel centrally. Ethics are not central. They are peripheral. But peripheral does not mean unnecessary. They are necessary. So we preach both. But we don't want to twist the cause and the effect, right? The cause is the gospel the glory of Jesus Christ shining on the cross to our hearts. That is the cause. The effect, the necessary effect, is the gospel ethics. So don't mix up the center with the borders. You need both, but don't mix them up. So we need to preach. What does it mean to preach? Make a public declaration. You don't need to convince people. So this is not just here behind the pulpit. It's also at your workplace, in your home. Just tell people the word. You're like, but they don't believe me or they just get mad at me. Don't be, don't be mean about it. Just, just announce it. Just say, this is what God says. You know what I want every Christian to do with, with the homosexuality discussion, just generally? I want you to memorize Romans 1, 24 to 26, and just quote it. Don't be mean about it. Don't be a jerk about it. Just be like, well, they're like, what do you think about it? You can say, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter what I think. It matters what God says. Here's what God has said. So you go to Romans 1, you quote it, and then you go to Romans 3, and you quote the, the gospel. You start talking about forgiveness of sins. And just, just leave it there. This is what God says. I just announce, announcing, I'm announcing what God has said. You don't believe it? Okay, we could debate that later, but, but let me just first announce. Let me just say it. Let me just declare it. And when should we do this? Verse 2, proclaim the message. Persist in it when? In season and what? Out of season, or whether it's convenient or inconvenient. And more often than not, is it convenient or inconvenient? It's inconvenient, and yet you need to persist in saying it. Okay, and then it goes on in verse 2, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. So what are you supposed to do? What are the tactics? The time is all the time. The tactics are rebuke, correct, and encourage. Rebuke means pointing out the wrong. Correct means pointing the way out of the wrong. And encourage means pointing them to God's grace and God's strength, not to their own strength. So point out the wrong, point the way out, point them to Jesus. Rebuke, correct, and encourage. Attitude. What should the attitude be in verse 2? With great what? Patience. Great patience and teaching. I want all of you to say it. With what? Great patience. Great patience. Why, do I have, why do we emphasize that? Because you should not get upset or surprised when you have to tell somebody 50 times. And then multiply it by 10 and tell someone 500 times. When you have to tell someone 500 times, what do we call that? Great what? Great what? Great patience. And teaching. Don't get discouraged, brothers or sisters. Your job is not to transform people's hearts. That's your goal. That's not your job. Your job is to announce it with great patience. Be humble. Care for the people. Pray for them. And just keep saying it. Patiently. If, if it helps, have a tally thing at home. You know, just tally it away. Get to 500. Then you could start getting angry maybe after 500. All right, that's your attitude. Now, when Paul, didn't Paul do this to Peter? Did he, did, did he preach the word to Peter last week in Galatians 2 when he corrected him? Yes, he did, right? Timothy is to preach the word to the congregation. Timothy is supposed to do that in discipling people. And every Christian does that everywhere they go. Listen to Acts eleven nineteen. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message only to the Jews. So you have every normal Christian, not leaders, not deacons, not pastor, elder, overseers, regular Christians speaking the message, proclaiming the message. And what was the result? Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a large number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You know, the most mission minded church planning church in all of the New Testament. Do you know what church it was? Antioch. And you know who planned that church? You don't. Why? Their names are not mentioned. 
It was normal church members, not pastors, not elders, not deacons, not missionaries, or not vocational missionaries, not apostles, not prophets, Christians, just sharing the gospel with people they talked to. And the most missions-minded church planting church in all of history was planted. You do. Speak the word. Announce the word. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, this is why I don't like Christians, actually, PJ. Because Christians are always preaching. Why do they think they're better than others? Why do they think they they know more than others, that they have the right way, and that they're superior to all other people and religions and worldviews? My answer is, I hope we don't think we're better, first of all. And I would like to apologize when we do think that, because we're wrong to think that. But I do want to respond by saying, we just want to obey what God says. I mean, we don't have a choice. When God says, preach the word, or go therefore and make disciples, we have no choice. Or I should say, we have a happy choice. We have a happy choice to obey Christ. Secondly, we love you. And if we love people, we don't want them to face God's judgment that we all deserve. So that's why we preach. Third, we, we love grace. We love grace and we love sharing it because we're just so happy in it ourselves. And lastly, and this is really what I want you to to see if you're not a Christian, we are beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. We're not better. We just, we're hungry just like you are and we found bread. And we want you to find it too. And that's why we preach because we found Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you. As we say, announce the word, you're saying, I'm not going to announce the word, I'm not a Christian. Okay, listen to the announcement. And think about it. Even if you disagree, at least identify the questions that are hindering you. Think about it, listen to it. If you're not a Christian, let me just tell you what you need to think about. Think about this. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner. God made us to enjoy him and reflect him, but we've rejected him. But God sent his son Jesus because we deserve death and judgment for our sins. The good news is God sent Jesus to die for us and rise for us. To live the life we should have lived, die on the cross for our sins that we deserve. So that if you repent from your sins, if you turn from your sins and your own righteousness right now and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be given life. That's good news. You'll be given God. God will give himself to you forever. And you were made for that. So repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Jesus. If you're a Christian, how does it apply to you before we close? Read the Bible with people. We have some of our members here reading their Bible with coworkers. That's an illustration of announcing the word. We have other members of our church answering classmates' questions about the Bible and about Jesus. That's announcing the word. We have another, we had a pumpkin carving party um, around Halloween time last month with one of our small groups and we had some of our members sharing the gospel or one of our members sharing the gospel with someone else at the party. That's announcing the word. So announce the word to non-Christians, but also announce the word to Christians. Get together with other Christians and read the Bible together. Pray together. You don't need permission from me. You don't need permission from the church leadership. Just get together and read the Bible and pray. Announce the word to one another. Speak the word of God to each other. And as a church, we need to expect expository preaching in this church. What's expository preaching? It's when the words and the goal of the passage control the words and the goal of the message. Okay? When the words and the goal of the passage controls the words and the goal of the, of the message, that's expository preaching. The other option is, what does PJ think today? Right? What's PJ's opinion on this or that? Or what's the preacher's opinion? And quite frankly, I'd be wasting your time if I was just sharing my opinions. And this church would not have God's life in it if God's word is not spoken. So why do we need to do this? Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4 says, they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what happens when you don't preach the word. But as for you, be serious about everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Do you know that Jesus stayed in the word versus Satan in the wilderness? And he stayed in the word in the garden of Gethsemane? Do you know that Jesus personalized the word when he was saying, let this cup be passed from me? And yet God told him, you must drink this cup. And he personalized it to his own life. And do you know that Jesus announced the word? Did he not teach the word? Did he not disciple apostles to announce the word? So when you stay in the word and you personalize the word and you announce the word, we don't do it well. 
But Jesus did. He's the Psalm 1, 1, the Psalm 1 man, the blessed man, who's like a tree planted next to the water, meditating on God's word day and night, staying in it and personalizing it and announcing it. So he becomes this fruitful tree that as he preaches the word to us, we believe and we repent and then we stay in the word and we personalize the word and then we announce the word and then we become fruitful trees next to the river of life, the water of life, the water of God's word, and we grow and bear fruit. And so when you stay in the word, you stay in Jesus. When you personalize the word, you're personalizing Jesus to yourself. You're drawing near to Jesus personally. And when you announce the word, you are announcing Jesus to other people. And so when you stay and personalize and announce Jesus, you experience Jesus. And when you experience Jesus, you embody him and you explain him to others so that they experience Jesus through you and through our church. And when that happens, we help people follow Jesus. And isn't that why we're here? To help people follow Jesus? If we fail, if we fail to stay, if we fail to personalize and if we fail to remain, if we functionally reject scripture, many people in this church will abandon and fall away from Jesus as we keep going. We'll have members who come in and fall away. You'll have more of those. If we fail to receive God's word and remain in it, our church will habitually be hearing God's word preached, yet we'll distance ourselves from personally applying it and we'll grow in knowledge but not in godliness. And if our church refuses to announce the word, we will lose the clarity and power of the proclamation of the gospel. So what if we respond in faith today? Then we'll help our members endure, right? And if we do that, as we personalize the word, we will grow. We'll grow and we'll equip our church family to grow as well. And the neighbors will hear the gospel and the nations will hear the gospel because of our, our, our remaining and personalizing the word. And when we announce the word, more people will hear God's word. And faith comes by what? Hearing Hearing the word of Christ. We want more people hearing. Because as more people hear, God awakens more hearts to it. So as we take this Bible alone, and we stay in it, personalize it, and announce it, if we do that as a church family, we will, God's word will focus our lives and refocus our lives again and again and again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who dwelt among us, who showed us your glory, great, full of grace and truth, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so we ask now, Father, that you would give us the power to stay in the word, that you would give us the perseverance to personalize, the humility to personalize the word, And that you'd give us the boldness and the courage to announce the word. We thank you for doing it to us now. We pray for your grace to continue even now as we go to communion and think about Christ's death afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.